NASA flies spacecraft all over the solar system and orbits the Earth. How do we communicate with them when they're so far away? Let's find out from an expert. Hi, I'm Jim Green, and this is a new season of Gravity Assist. We're going to explore the inside workings of NASA in making these fabulous missions happen. I'm here with Nasser Chahak, and he is the senior antenna and microwave engineer with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory out in Pasadena, California. He has worked on one of the most important challenges for NASA, and that is in designing a spacecraft, how do you make it communicate back and forth with Earth? So welcome to Gravity Assist. Thank you for having me here. A lot of people are familiar with the idea of an antenna from a radio or TV sets for which they receive a signal. But when we look at a spacecraft, we see all kinds of different antennas. What's their main function? Yeah, so the principle is the same. However, every single spacecraft have different instruments. Uh, so depending on the requirement, whether they are instruments or communication, they come in different format, different aspects. So most of the communication antennas will be the typical dishes that we see. So those are the ones that you see the most often on spacecraft. Uh, but whenever we push the boundary of what we are trying to do, we have to come up with different innovative antenna solutions to address the needs of our scientists. You know, a lot of the antennas that you use, you use for what we call remote sensing. What does that really mean? So remote sensing allows us to getting something from afar. And so we're using radio frequency to transmit pulses. These pulses are reflecting back from the surface of what we want to study. And then we're processing this data to make conclusions. Yeah, that's everything from uh, having the opportunity to bounce radio waves off surfaces to even penetrate those radio waves into surfaces like, like the ice caps or even the Sahara Desert. Yeah, and that also allows us to uh, get images of things we cannot see. So for example, if the weather is bad and Earth is completely uh, covered with clouds, we can still see what's happening under them. Well, you know, uh, communication with our surface assets on Mars is kind of complicated. You know, uh, when we landed Curiosity, I don't see it carrying a big truck with a big dish behind it. So how do we communicate back and forth with, with our surface assets, like Insight, like Perseverance, like Curiosity? Yes, so we have two concepts to do so. Uh, the first one is uh, to communicate with the orbiter. So we have... Mm. Uh, uh, orbiters uh, around the Mars, which we can, they, they are dedicated for science, but for critical events like that, we can use them to relay the data uh, to Earth. Uh, and we also have on um, these landers and rover, uh, high-gain antennas that allow us to communicate directly with uh, Earth, but at lower data rates. So it's really a trade of uh, uh, when, when we should be using the orbiter or when we should be using the high-gain antenna. Most of the time, we end up using the orbiter because it allows us to transmit the science much faster. Uh, so those are the reasons. And most of the Mars mission are, have always worked this way. So we transmit the data to the orbiter and the orbiter transmits 
back to the to the deep space uh, network uh, on Earth. Yeah, that sounds complicated, but it provides an infrastructure that allows any asset that's on the surface to be able to be relayed through our orbiting satellites. It's really a, an exciting time in, in this particular uh, field. You know, when the InSight lander arrived and uh, landed on Mars in November 2018, it carried with it two CubeSats. And we call those CubeSats Marco. What were they supposed to be doing and how important was communication for them? Yeah, so Marco was actually one of my first uh, uh, projects. Uh, and when I joined JPL, the former director of the lab, Charles Elachi, challenged the lab to find a way to uh, do uh, real-time communication during the landing of InSight. So with the existing uh, orbiter, we were able to collect all the information from uh, InSight during the landing. However, because of the alignment of the orbiter, we couldn't get the data right away. So the role of this two CubeSat was actually to receive this data from the lander inside and transmit this data in real time. So uh, the, the main challenge was uh, to be able from these very, very si uh, tiny satellites, which are the size of a shoebox, being able to transmit at the same data rate, which was roughly around eight kilobit per second. This was really difficult because we needed an antenna that was three times the size of the, the, the satellite itself. So we had to find a way to fold the antenna and deploy it. That's also the first interplanetary uh, CubeSat. So we had to ensure that we could actually survive the flight uh, uh, to, to Mars, which we did very successfully. When we witnessed the, the, the landing of InSight, we were all excited because for those who actually followed the landing, if you remember when they were saying, oh, we are now 100 meter, 90 meter, 20 meter, and all the excitement was coming up, all I had in mind was, oh, that's my antenna who's transmitting all this data. And then it landed, we exploded with joy, and we finally received this uh, first picture uh, from InSight on the surface of Mars, which also got relayed using the Marco antenna. If we did not have the CubeSat, uh, we would have had to wait more than two hours after that wow. because the orbiter was not on a line of sight. So that's such an amazing accomplishment that uh, we've been able to, to, to do. And that's really what's beautiful about working at NASA is that we're able to do things that nobody has done before. Yeah, I remember that time I was head of uh, planetary science and it was really riveting. And I was just delighted that the Marco spacecraft worked. And in fact, it was really nail biting for the simple reason that we were having problems with one of the Marco spacecraft very close to the encounter time. Uh, do you remember that? And what happened? I do. I do. And we were very worried about that. Uh, so one of them actually restarted. Like, I think it was a few hours before, maybe a day before, I don't recall exactly. So we were worried that uh, one of the CubeSat would not be able to relay the data. Uh, but after it rebooted, it went in safe mode and rebooted uh, in a nominal mode, and they both successfully relayed the data. Well, you know, we're flying a helicopter on Mars for the first time, and we call that ingenuity. Uh, did you get involved in that, and what's your role? When I saw the first flight, I couldn't help but think of all these hours spent working really hard to solve technical problems. All these people working on delivering hardware that you don't necessarily see on TV. 
This achievement is absolutely historical, and I am happy I got to contribute. My contribution was with the telecommunication subsystem to ensure that the rover can send uh, uh, commands to the helicopter and the helicopter can send images or telemetry back to the rover. So I worked on the antenna design and also worked on the system engineering. Wow, that sounds really difficult because this is a very small vehicle. What's that antenna look like? I don't remember seeing it. Does it stick out or is it part of, uh, it goes up the top or where's it at? You know? Yes, yeah, so on the top of the helicopter, there is a solar panel, which allows us to uh, uh, recharge uh, our battery. Uh, and we decided to locate the antenna on the surface because this is what provided the largest area to use as a reflective surface. Uh, so uh, this is the simplest type of antenna that you can ever use. This is called monopole. So monopole is basically a single wire mm -hmm. uh, which is resonant at the frequency of operation and located on top of a reflective surface. And the reflective surface in this case is the solar array. Uh, this uh, wire allows us to operate at the frequency uh, of interest, but this antenna, this type of monopole antenna, are being used when you need to communicate uh, what we call omnidirectionally, meaning we need to communicate this, uh, with the same capabilities in any direction, because we don't know where the helicopter uh, uh, helicopter or rover will be, because it will constantly move when it's flying, right? Uh, so that's the reason why we use such an antenna. It's very small. It's about five to six centimeter, which is basically a quarter wavelength at the frequency of operation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, you move the copter and it comes back down and it's not necessarily in that same orientation. So you exactly. want to broadcast. So it sounds yeah. like, though, the ingenuity communication is only uh, with with perseverance and then it's up to perseverance to package that data and then send it up to an orbiter which then relays it back to earth that's that's exactly it and the reason is very simple is that obviously with such a small helicopter we will not be able to communicate directly to the orbiter and even less with earth so that's the concept that that we we used the helicopter is also uh, has to 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 stay away from the rover itself because the rover needs to be uh, completely safe. Uh, so we have a keep out zone, which is roughly above 100 meters. So the helicopter will never uh, fly uh, within 100 meters of the rover. Uh, so the telecommunication subsystem was designed to communicate from 100 meters to one kilometer, which is very far away. Uh, and we've done a lot of testing uh, nearby our lab uh, outside. Uh, a field test, which was very, very exciting, where we had a real size mock-up of the rover and the helicopter, and we uh, located it in different directions to make sure that all of our uh, models and analyses were correct. Wow, that sounds really fun. Another thing that NASA likes to do is think about missions that are in the future. And even though we're sending a spacecraft to Europa, uh, called Clipper, we've also been thinking about what it might be like to get down on the surface, a lander. Now, you were also involved in the communication system for a lander on Europa. What would that be like and how does that have to work? The original concept of uh, the Europa lander uh, concept was to uh, send an orbiter as well 
along with the lander. And the orbiter will have communication, telecommunication capabilities to relay the data back to Earth. However, uh, doing so would have been cost prohibitive. So we were asked very quickly to revise the concepts uh, to reduce the cost so that this mission could someday be possible. And the only way to do so was to communicate directly with Earth so that we don't have to uh, have an orbiter as well. Uh, so to do that, the conclusion that was that we needed an antenna with an efficiency of more than 80%, which to give you an idea has never done before. All of the uh, Mars rover or lander, they have efficiencies of less than uh, 45% roughly. Uh, but the lander has additional constraints. The antenna needed to be flat. It needed to uh, survive the environment and the very high radiation of Europa. And for those reasons, people thought it was just not possible to do so. So we came up with an antenna design that fulfilled all of these requirements and achieved the efficiency. We fully tested this antenna to the environment of Europa uh, to qualify this antenna for a potential Europa lander mission in the future. And so now we're in a very, very, very good shape because we know that this Europa mission concept is possible. Uh, we have all the technology that are needed to do that because NASA supported us to develop all of this technology. Yeah, that's really great. Now, coming back to the Earth, uh, your current project is on SWAT, which is the Surface Water and Ocean Topography Mission. What are you up to with that, and have we launched it yet? No, we are uh, right now. We are in uh, integration, uh, so and testing, uh, what we call INT. Um, so we the payload is fully assembled. Right now, we're actually currently doing all the environmental testing on the payload. Uh, before we uh, ship it to France, uh, to a partner in France, CNES, uh, to integrate it with the spacecraft. So this mission is very exciting because we're pushing the boundaries of uh, the science measurement accuracy. So the role of a SWAT is to measure uh, the surface topology of the ocean, but also uh, the water surface for the first time. So we will have a global uh, a map of the entire Earth and we will be able to know where the water is uh, um, continuously. And so that's, that's the beauty of SWAT. Uh, there is a lot of new technology that needed to be developed to do that, uh, to improve the accuracy of these measurements. Um, and so we're very, very excited to see this uh, uh, mission moving along and getting very ready to fly. So what's the new advancement in antenna technologies? Every single mission has different requirements. So we tend to design a new antenna every single time. I would say that the holy grail of the antenna, from my point of view, would be to design an antenna that could be applied for every mission to meet any requirements. So obviously that's, that's almost impossible to do so, but for communication, that's not impossible. We could come up with an antenna that could shape the beam in any way we want for a given aperture. And that's what I'm working on on, on my research side to achieve such a thing. Sounds great. Nasser, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was that event, that person, place, or thing that got them so excited about being the engineer they are today. And I call that event a gravity assist. So Nasser, what was your gravity assist? The scientist that I respect the, the most is Mary Curie, who 
was also from the same country that I am from, from France. Uh, but really, what, what I like about Marie Curie is her dedication for her work. And I think nobody was as dedicated as her because she actually gave her life for, for her work. Mm -hmm. And the work ethics that uh, she has demonstrated is what, what uh, I share the most with Marie Curie. So, uh, but I would... Uh, I would say as well that it's not necessarily an engineer or a scientist that really inspired me. In my case, uh, my, my, my parents are from a, a very poor country in Algeria, north of Africa, uh, and they didn't have access to education. Uh, so uh, after they moved in France, uh, I was born and raised in France, uh, they really share uh, this um, notion of understanding that the education is a gift. They didn't have the chance and they wanted to make sure that, uh, that, that I realized the chance I had and that I could take advantage of uh, the education I was given as much as possible. So that's why I always worked really, really hard to uh, do as much as I could and learn as much as I could. Uh, and so I, I would say that my gravity assist are not engineers or scientists, but are actually my parents. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. Nasser. Thank you so much for joining me in discussing this fantastic topic. It was my pleasure. It's always, it's, it's always great to share the experience that we have of de developing new technology at JPL. So thank you for having me. Join me next time as we continue our journey to look under the hood at NASA and see how we do what we do. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.